You can be seated. Um, Brother Scott, Dr. Scott Atterbury uh, is a man that doesn't need introduction for, for many, uh, but do, if, you've been, if you've come over the last five years, you do need an introduction. Um, Brother Scott was the pastor uh, preaching here at Wyatt from uh, 2005 to 2012. And our church, I believe, owes Brother Scott a, a great debt because I think he was exactly what we needed at that time uh, to set our church on a trajectory to be more healthy, uh, a trajectory that I think we are still enjoying today because of his leadership during that time. And, uh, and I, for one, am, am so thankful uh, for the time he was at Wyatt. I'm also thankful for what he does now. And this is uh, when he left Wyatt, he went to work uh, for Disciple Guide Ministries, uh, which uh, is an uh, organization or work that um, puts uh, out literature, um, handles conferences, puts on conferences, and uh, is engaged in trying to uh, help churches be more healthy. And I'm glad, uh, I'm glad he's there. I'm glad uh, he has a heart for churches. He has an amazing heart for discipleship. And, and uh, he's, a, he's, he's, again, I think, right there, the exact man that is needed for that ministry uh, as well. Our church in a few weeks will be, uh, be um, participating in a fundraiser uh, for Disciple Guide at our Thanksgiving feast, and I'll let him uh, tell you more about that. But uh, in, I think we have a video, and then we're going to welcome uh, Brother Scott Atterbury. This church may not look like much. It's not flashy, and some may write it off as irrelevant. But what most people don't see is this congregation's kingdom value. This church has faithfully served the community for over 84 years. In that time, more than 3,000 people have trusted Christ, and 24 pastors have grown up in these Sunday school classes. Three have even given their lives to missions. Altogether, more than 17,000 lives have been touched around the world through this one church. This could be your church or my church. And no matter what the times have called for, it's been there. We're here to help make sure it's there for the next generation, ready for the opportunities ahead. Disciple Guide helps churches maximize their great commission potential through camps, conferences, curriculum, and consulting. We believe in local churches. We believe in your church. Working together, combining our resources, we can make a difference in the church and in the world for eternity. Well, I just want to say, first off, I love Wyatt Baptist Church. And um, there's a big part of my heart that just lives here. And I couldn't tell you um, how many times I think about you and I pray for you. Love to hear what's going on here. Um, I want you to know that um, you guys were exactly what I needed at a certain point in my life. And, um, of course, I believe in God's sovereignty. I don't know if you've heard about that, but... Um, but I believe that it was, it was God's providence that he brought 
still a dying. And uh, this is where he chose for us to have a son. And this is where he chose for Jill to get to go home. And there's no other church that I would want to be in during all of that. I was reading a book the other day where um, a pastor was talking about church revitalization and the process of, of uh, going to a church and, and all of that. And, but he made this, this one statement that just stood out to me. He said, uh, and this reminded me of my experience. He said, you know, looking back, I thought that I was having to be patient with a church realizing they were having to be very patient with me. Thank you for being patient with me. The things that I learned here, observing and watching and getting to be a part of are things that I share with other churches all the time now. The most common phrase I say is, at Wyatt, <laughs> and then I tell them what you guys do and tell them about men and women that aren't paid by the church who have developed ministries within the church that are reaching the community and reaching the world. Thank you for being a model church that we can point other churches to see an example of what happens when people just live out the gospel and are obedient to Christ. Um, that's my job now, is I get to help churches uh, through Disciple Guide. I don't know if you're aware of it. Um, there are a lot of churches that are, that are struggling uh, in our group of churches particularly, but then just in the whole. There are a lot of churches struggling and um, sometimes all they need is encouragement, but other times uh, things have gotten bad and maybe there's been leadership that has led them astray and they need things corrected. Um, we're there to lend them a hand. We do that. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you picked up one of these brochures on your way in, but you can see that. Um, just in our brochure, we do that through curriculum. We do it through camps, Daniel Springs down in, in Gary, Texas. We do it through our conferences like SOAR, uh, Student Conference, our Church Leaders Conference, um, our Senior Adult Conference. But then most importantly, I think, and, and where my heart is, we do it through what we call church consulting, uh, church solutions, however you want to phrase it. Um, we're, we're doing everything that we can to get involved personally with churches, not to tell them what to do, uh, but to provide a help, a resource, uh, an objective set of eyes to, to maybe look at things that they haven't noticed in a while, um, to help them think through big issues that may be plaguing their church, and also, more than anything, to look at what Scripture says about the church, and then learning how their church can live that out. And more times than not, that, the answers are a lot simpler, in my opinion, than, than we think they are. Uh, because it's laid out in Scripture for us. Um, if we obey Scripture, uh, churches do well by kingdom standards. Sometimes we just have the wrong standards. We're wanting to begin some new things with Disciple Guide. Let me, 
I, I feel like I can tell you a little bit more than I normally tell, tell churches. Um, for the last five years, uh, Disciple Guide has been working to get financially stable. Uh, when I first went to Disciple Guide, uh, we, were, we were running um, losses at the end of the year in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, that, was, that was sort of priority number one. If, if this is going to be a ministry to help people, first we've gotten to, to get into a place where we can help. And so it's taken five years, but just this last month uh, in September, when we had our last board meeting, we finally uh, were able to present budgets for the f- upcoming fiscal year that are in the black, um, that, um, that will provide everything that we need for the ministries we're doing currently, which means we're finally at a point that we can add new ministries. Um, and that's what I'm excited about. I, I'm just going to tell you about a few. There, there's a lot of things that, that we have in mind but a few that are, that are, I think, maybe some of the most needed in our work. One is an intentional interim program. Churches are most vulnerable when they're without a pastor. Um, that's not always true. When, for, for instance, when I came to Wyatt, you guys had strong leadership. You already had people on staff that, that could carry the load and did a great job of that. But not every church has multiple people on staff. And so when the one staff member, the pastor, is gone, many times the church begins to crumble because no one takes the lead and knows what to do. And the longer they go without a pastor, especially someone who can direct them to what do we do now and what should we be looking for in a pastor and how can we make sure we're the right kind of church for that pastor, if that doesn't happen, the church can find itself worse off if they choose the wrong pastor. And so we want to help those churches in that vulnerable time with an intentional interim program. At the very same time, Um, there's a lot of churches that will say, we can't find a pastor. There's just no more men who will pastor. Well, that's actually not true. There's a lot of men out there who who have studied to be pastors, who are men of integrity and character and have trained and would be wonderful pastors, but nobody knows them and they have no way to get their name out there. And so at the same time we want to do an intentional interim program, we also want to set up a, a pastor search Uh, service that we can tell the church hey we've got young men that have gone through Bible college or seminary they've come in we've met them we've asked them hard questions we've we've walked through what they believe and we can vouch for them that that they're solid pastors and not only that um, we've asked them a little bit to find out about their personality are they a formal guy are they a laid-back guy are they a country guy city guy whatever and and hey we feel like they'd be a great match for your church. We're not telling you it's meant to be, but we're just trying to put people together to help, help churches. Um, one other thing that we want to do is to help bivocational pastors. Um, I was mentioning this yesterday to a group of guys. I believe the real heroes uh, in our work are bivocational pastors because there are churches that if it wasn't for those men they wouldn't have a pastor at all. That's all that they can afford. Um, And so if it wasn't for a man who would say, hey, after I work my 40 hours a week on the job, I will turn around and spend extra time preparing a sermon, visiting the hospital, visiting in homes, doing all of those other things. That's a huge job. I don't know how they do that. I want to, to be able to provide resources to help them. How can, they, how can they make better use of their time to prepare a sermon? You know, these guys want to prepare a quality sermon. They have limited time. What can we do to help them? 
They can't always go to a training somewhere else because they've got work. How can we bring trainings and resources to them? So we want to help those guys uh, because I believe that bivocational doesn't mean second best or second class. Um, in fact, it could be that they're heroes. They're heroes of our faith. And they've, they've made sacrifices to do something for the kingdom. And, and we want to help them and champion their cause. Like Adam mentioned, we are um, holding our first ever potluck fundraiser. This doesn't go to pay salaries. This doesn't go uh, to pay any of our overhead expenses or anything like that. These are all for the funds that are generated from the potluck are all for these new resources we want to develop for intentional interims, for bivocational pastors, for, for men who are wanting to pastor, all of those things to help churches be strengthened in the word. And I think, do we have one more video to show about that, about the potluck? We'll show you that real quick. Our world missions program is only as strong as our local churches at home. Strong, healthy churches are the key to raising up new missionaries and supporting their work around the world. That's why the work of Disciple Guide is so important. They help churches grow stronger through camps, conferences and curriculum and consulting. And many of their services, they're offered free of charge. But they can't do it without you. When you invest in Disciple Guide, you invest in the future of our local churches who, in turn, invest in world missions. So this holiday season, join us in supporting Disciple Guide through their potluck offering. During one of your church's holiday meals, simply take an offering for Disciple Guide to be invested in local BMA churches. Your offering will impact local churches as well as global missions for years to come. So thank you, Wyatt, for participating in our potluck. I'm praying all of you hit it big in the lottery this week, and then, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to look, starting in verse 27, this is immediately following the famous passage where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. In that passage, uh, as you recall, Jesus meets this woman. It, it's strange that Jesus, we would find him talking to the woman, or at least everybody else thinks it's strange, because she's a Samaritan, because she's a woman. And we find out through her, their conversation, she's a woman with a reputation in town. Um, this was strange, to say the least, to the disciples. And so through that conversation, the woman comes to faith in Christ. And many times we'll stop the sermon there, but I just want to pick up on the rest of the story. What happened next after the lady comes to Christ, comes to faith in Christ, what happens next? Because I think there's a valuable lesson uh, for us all here. Now, I, gotta, I just got to say from the outset, this is one of those sermons, I think the most powerful sermons are the sermons you're preaching to yourself. And this is one I'm preaching to myself. So this is not one person who has it all figured out telling everybody else you need to get it all figured out. No, this is, this is coming from a guy who um, may be the chief of sinners in this area, okay? Um, just saying, here's, here's my confession, and this is something we all need to, need to work on in our lives. In John chapter 4, when Jesus comes to this lady, she would have been considered unclean. 
no rabbi would have been caught talking to her. First of all, because she's a Samaritan, but then because she's a woman, that would have made an association with the lady, being in contact with her, would have made the rabbi unclean. And so that's why this is such a strange scenario. Because Jesus was seen by his contemporaries as a rabbi, a teacher. When I, um, when I first came to Wyatt, literally the first week, someone in town said, hey, I heard you guys have plans to build a building, this one that we're in now. I heard you had plans to build a building. I said, yeah, that's right. And they said, hey, I don't think you guys need to do that. Really? They said, well, yeah, I know you're new to town, but um, such and such factory just shut down. Population's been declining. I, I just don't see how any church could support a whole new building or... or expect to have more members. If anything, churches will be declining in our town because the town is declining. Now, if I had been living here for a few years, I might have had the exact same attitude. I'll just admit, okay? But because I was that brand new, fresh eyes, you know, just, just came into town so excited, I was just looking at things from a different angle because I had checked out the population of El Dorado, about 18,000. And I tried to do my best figuring, you know, with the number of churches in town and, and the size of those churches, how many people would be in church on any given Sunday in El Dorado. And, and I think I figured up something like maybe 5,000 people on any given Sunday back then would have been in church on a, on a Sunday morning in El Dorado. And so in my mind, I'm thinking 5,000, 18,000. There's 13,000 people to choose from in El Dorado. So what if the population's declined a little bit or a factory goes out? Hey, there's 13,000 people who are not worshiping Jesus Christ on Sunday mornings with a church family. That's a huge opportunity. Now, like I said, that, that sounds like I, you know, had some great viewpoint. It was just youth and naive, naivety, okay? Like I said, give me a couple of years and I probably would have been scratching my head about it too. But I've often thought back about that, about that situation. I thought, what is it that causes all of us to overlook people in our community? What is it that causes us to think, well, we've kind of tapped out the, the whole population here. There's nobody else we could even expect to come to our church or to come to Christ in this town. Saturated the market, right? What is it that causes us to think that way and overlook multitudes of people. Remember, I'm preaching to myself. Could it be that like the people of this day and time that would have looked at Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman like, what are you doing? Because she's unclean. Could it be that we overlook people in our town and don't even consider that we should share the gospel with them, or that they might be someone that Christ is wanting to save, it, could it be that the reason we don't do that is because we view them as unclean as well? Let me say it another way. Could it be that when we leave today, and you go wherever you're going for lunch, or you go to Walmart, 
and you see some folks in town, could it be that the reason that it doesn't occur to you, hey, that is a person that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's somebody who could potentially become a mature, growing Christian and maybe even a member of our church, could it be because they don't look like us, they didn't grow up like us, they don't have the same values as we do, Maybe they don't even believe in the same political affiliation that we have. Could it be that we overlook people because of of their financial status, where in town they live, the color of their skin? Could it be that we just naturally overlook these people and in our minds we just consider them unworthy or unclean? Let's see what happens And what Jesus teaches his disciples about that sort of an attitude in John chapter 4. I'm just going to call it Christian prejudice. Christian prejudice, which would be rooted in hypocrisy and selfishness and pride in the gospel. I've got it all together. They don't. Therefore, I deserve the gospel and they don't. Let's see what happens in John chapter 4, starting in verse 27. Just then, after the scenario with the lady, just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. First thing I want you to notice about these unclean people is that Jesus pursues unclean people. Jesus pursues them. He doesn't just put them on a prayer list and say, I've got a heart for them. He doesn't just meet once a week in a Sunday school class and say, let's pray for the lost. And he doesn't just pass by them and say, "Mm, what a shame. No, he actively went to the woman. He went out of his way to meet with this Samaritan woman. He pursued her. He pursues unclean people to the extreme that this caught the eyes of the the disciples. And in verse 27, it says that they marveled or they were shocked 
They couldn't believe it. This was scandalous that he would be doing this. And yet it was exactly what he came to do. Remember he said, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. I came for the sick. And so he pursues those who are deemed unclean. I think we can learn a a huge lesson here, and that is if you're going to be involved in ministry, not if you're going to be on a church staff or surrender to pastor or preach or something like that, but if you're a believer, which means that Christ has called you to ministry, because that's part of being a Christian is you live a life of ministry. So if you're a believer and you're going to do ministry, you need to get ready because ministry is messy. You're going to have to get your hands dirty because people's lives are dirty. And let's just be honest. It's not just an us or them thing. If we were really honest, if we really were, were to you know, take away the mask, we would have to all admit there are things in our life that are filthy and messy and dirty and a mess that we would want nobody else to know about. Ministry's messy. But the disciples didn't seem to get it yet. And so in verse 31, you see them talking to Jesus, and they they say, Rabbi, eat. I'm not for sure what they were doing here. Either they were just genuinely concerned, Jesus, it's kind of mealtime, because it was, it was the middle of the day, let's go eat. Or I've wondered, and, and there's nothing here to prove it or not prove it, I wonder if they were just trying to rescue Jesus from an awkward situation. You know, hey, Rabbi, let's go eat, let's get you away from the woman. Not sure, but they say eat. And just like Jesus, to take something so common, he takes that idea of eating and teaches them a lesson. Rabbi, eat. And and Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Well, then the disciples say to each other, has anyone brought him something to eat? They still don't get it. He's not talking about physical food. In verse 34, Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Don't you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So they say eat, and Jesus says, hey, let me tell you about a different hunger. I've got a different food that I'm looking for, and I want to build within you a hunger for something even more than physical food. I want to build into you a hunger, a desire for sharing the gospel with unclean people, the people who need it. Now, he brings up this idea of harvesting. And he says, hey, aren't you the guys who know how to look at the calendar and say, oh, four more months and then it'll be harvest time. And, and, and you're looking at that calendar because when you're a, when you're a farmer and, and your, your well-being depends on the harvest, That means that you better be ready. You can't be out of town when it's harvest time. You've got to be there and be ready because you only have a limited window of time to get the harvest off of the the stalk or the vine or whatever it is you're growing and get it into the barn or else you'll lose the harvest. And so he's saying, guys, you know the urgency when it's harvest time. You know that when it's harvest time, you're even willing to skip a meal Because you have a greater hunger for getting your harvest in. A greater desire. That takes precedent in your life over eating for the moment. It's more important that you get the harvest in 
then you eat for the moment. You can eat later. He's saying, guys, the harvest is now. We don't have time to eat right now because we've got an opportunity to harvest souls. And I want you guys to have the same hunger for souls that I have so that when you look at those people, you see them the way I see them. That's what Jesus is telling them. I want you to have a hunger for souls. And then he says those famous words, look up because the fields are white unto harvest. White just meaning it's time now. Harvest time is now. And in your mind's eye, just imagine the scene. There he is talking to his disciples. And when they do look up, when Jesus says, look up because the fields are white unto harvest, what is it? What is it that the disciples would see right then? It's all of these people. It's all of the Samaritans that the lady had been sinning with. Remember, Jesus had asked her, do you have a husband? No. He says, that's right, you've had a hundred of them. You've had a bunch And the one you're living with now isn't even your husband. Who is it that she went and got and brought back? Well, it doesn't say their names here. But who else in town would she feel comfortable enough to say, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did? So I believe that the people that she brought back were most likely those same men she had been sinning with and maybe some women that, that, that were in the same lifestyle as, as her. They were the unclean of the community. They were Samaritans too. They were the ones the disciples would have avoided at all costs. And yet Jesus is saying, you want to see the harvest, lift up your eyes because it's white. And those are the very faces that they're seeing. What if Jesus took a ride with you in your car today? I think I would probably get frustrated. I like to get one place to another and have no interruptions. I have a feeling I'd probably never make it to Walmart if Jesus was riding with me. Because he would probably say, slow down. Hey, let's stop right here. See that guy right there? When I would probably want to lock the doors, he would say, "Uh uh-uh, we're getting out. That's the harvest. Or take a detour in this neighborhood. Lord, I've never gone in that neighborhood. I've been told don't go to that neighborhood. We're going to this neighborhood. And if we ever did make it to, to Walmart, probably wouldn't make it, you know, like I like to shop straight to the, to the aisle that I need and get the one thing, put it in the buggy, try not to see anybody or make eye contact, get through the... No, 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 no. We would be stopping and talking. Not to the people that look like me or act like me or that might benefit me to build a relationship with or the people that I need to keep up appearances with or the the people that, oh, if I don't shake their hand, they're going to be offended. No, 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 no. It would be the other people that I normally would breeze right by. Those are the people. And I can just, just see them whispering, it's the harvest, it's the harvest, it's the harvest all around He's saying, guys, there's a greater hunger than for physical food. It's a hunger for souls. And the harvest 
is white. And then he says this. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. I think he's talking about the Samaritan woman. Because here she is bringing her fruit back to Jesus. And he says, already, here's someone reaping and receiving rewards for eternal life. What a flip of kingdom mindset there. You guys think you're doing something valuable. She's doing the most valuable thing. And he says, and guys, it's not too late for you. Verse 37, here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. In other words, seeds have already been sown. Some of them by this lady herself already. You guys get to get in on the harvest party and reap right alongside her. Others have labored and you enter into their labor. Second thing I want you to notice is unclean people are the harvest. Jesus pursues unclean people, but it doesn't just stop there. Unclean people are the harvest. Man, there's a lot to be gained for the glory of God in this city and in the city where I live now if we would just focus our eyes on the harvest and see who the harvest is. You know, it would be ridiculous if you were talking to somebody who was a farmer and you said, hey, how's, how's farming going these days? How's, how's the business? If he turned to you and said, you know, it's funny. This year I, I'm trying a new method and um, wife and I bought a new dinner table. I mean, it, it is the nicest table we could find in town. And then we got some new, new plates. China, the finest China. Some new silverware. We got some new, new um, 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 what do you call that, crystal? Crystalware, I'm trying to think back to wedding shower days. We got it all. The napkins are the best fabric. And we got all that. And we set the table perfectly Man, we're so ready for that harvest to come in. But pray for us, because we've been, been sitting there every day at mealtime, and that harvest just hadn't come in yet. We even opened the front door so the harvest can just come on in and hop on our plate, and it has not done it yet. Well, we would think, this guy has lost his mind. That's not how, how the food gets on your plate. You have to go out and work the fields to see a harvest. That's the only way that it works. And as ridiculous as that sounds, man, don't we see that in contemporary Christianity and church life today all over the place? Man, I don't know why we hadn't seen more people coming to Christ, so, so we're just going to fix up the church building and make it look better and, and make the music sound better and, and we're going to paint and we're going to put up a new sign. We might even change the name of our church and we're going to do all of these things and, and surely they'll come in and they'll come in and they'll come in. And you know what? New paint and music and all those, those are great things, but lost people don't care. They don't care about the church. This isn't their home 
yet, if we want this to be their church home, we have to get out of these walls and go to the harvest, just like a farmer has to get out of his dining room and go to the field. Then we can have a harvest and a harvest party. Now here's the best part, third thing. God blesses ministry to the unclean. God blesses ministry to those we would think of as unclean. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Many. Many. That word's there for a reason. Many. It wasn't just a handful. This wasn't just, oh, the Samaritan woman and a couple of her friends. Many people came to Christ that day. And then look at verse 40. They asked him, hey, would you stay with us? The people who just earlier that day were still lost in their sins, loving their sins, enjoying their depravity, now are asking Christ, will you stay with us? And verse 40 says, he stayed there two days. Two, two days. Now, we know, theologically speaking, we know that this didn't surprise Christ and that on the eternal calendar, he didn't have to scratch something out and pencil something else in, right? I mean, because, because he's God. He knows everything. However, sometimes Scripture uses human language to help us just understand the point. To understand that this was so important to Christ that if it was just strictly humanly speaking, not divinely speaking, but just humanly speaking, for just a mere mortal like us, this would be the equivalent of, of being so, so there in the moment that we would say, you know what, cancel everything on my calendar the next two days. I want to be here. That's what Jesus did. You see, when, when the presence of Christ it's something that we hunger for and something that we desire so greatly. And then we say, why haven't we experienced the presence of Christ? Not His omnipresence. We know He's always with us. But we're talking about the relational presence. You know, wives, it's like when you're talking to your husband, you know, over dinner and sports center's on, on the wall, you know, where he can see it and you can't. And you're talking and talking and he's saying, uh-huh, 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 oh yeah, uh-huh. And then all of a sudden it hits you. He's here, but he's not really here. Hey, Christ is always here, omnipresent. But relationally, is he here? If a church wants to experience the relational presence of Christ in their midst, many times this is, this is the type of thing that we would refer to as revival, a spirit of revival in our church. If we want to see that, then according to this passage, the place where Christ's presence loves to dwell is with the unclean. Therefore, a church who wants to experience the presence of Christ ought to be about the business of harvesting souls among the unclean. That's when a church will begin to experience the presence of Christ and the joy of the harvest. But a church has to overcome the same thing that the Pharisees struggled with when they asked, why is he sitting or eating with sinners? And the church has to remember because it's the unclean, it's the sick who need the doctor. 
Jesus came to seek the, and save the lost, not those who have it all together. Unless we forget, every person in this room was one of the unclean when Christ came to you. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6? Or you do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. How arrogant of us, how arrogant of me. What Christian prejudice I possess when I act as though I deserve the gospel when I received it by grace alone. And then to turn around and act as if someone else is too unclean and unworthy of the gospel. You know, there's churches today that are shutting their doors or considering shutting their doors. We talk to them a lot. And one of the things that they'll say, I mean... I, we hear this over and over and over. You've probably heard it. Is a church will say, you know, we're just going to have to shut the doors. Or if they've got enough money in the bank, we're going to change the locations. And you say, why? Well, the neighborhood's changed. Which is just a way of saying those people in the neighborhood that moved in. You know, it used to be a bunch of white, middle class, upper middle class people like me. And we felt comfortable and, and we liked to minister to them. And we loved to have them at our Sunday school party. And now, but now it's not. Times have changed. And so we're just going to have to move or shut her down. Which translates into, we don't believe the people in the community, in the neighborhood that God has put right around us are worthy of hearing the gospel. We don't believe that we ought to go. We believe that they are less than us. And so we'll just overlook them. I, I just have a hunch that, that Christ doesn't like that attitude. And that what Christ has in mind for churches is that when Christ chooses to change the neighborhood, because remember, He's in charge and He's in control, that it's for a reason so that His people would reach them. Christ is bringing the harvest to us. It's not just with the immediate neighborhood. I mean, Wyatt of all churches knows this. Man, the nations come to Southern Arkansas University. And I love the way that Wyatt reaches out because God has brought the nations to us. And when our Spanish-speaking uh, brothers and sisters are in the community, that, that Wyatt loves to speak Spanish. And I love singing Spanish this morning. I love that. I've missed that. Because Wyatt sees that Spanish-speaking people need the gospel too. And I love that it's not just white people here this morning. Wyatt has a tan, right? Because it doesn't matter what color of skin you have, you were created in the image of God, and that image was tarnished, and Christ died so that that image might be restored through the power of his blood and his resurrection. And I love the fact that not everybody in here is on the same socioeconomic plane. 
Some of you have more, some of you have less. But I know because I've seen behind the scenes there's times that the people with the more, they anonymously give it so that people with less can have what they need. That's a picture of of Christ. But let me just ask this. Why at Baptist Church are you satisfied with that? Or are there more people, if we'll just say it this way, are there some that others might call unclean that Wyatt Baptist Church now is ready to say, you know what? But for the grace of God, there go I. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. That was me. And they need the gospel just like I needed the gospel. And I'm not going to overlook them anymore, but I'm going to share the gospel with them. And as God brings them to our town and our community and even next door, wherever it is, I'm going to take advantage of it because the fields are white for harvest. This morning, if Christ saved you while you were unclean, how would you ever justify withholding it from someone else? And so if if this morning, if you're like me and you just need to repent from the sin of Christian prejudice, just assuming that I deserved it and someone else doesn't, no matter who that person is or what they look like, whether you have a face or maybe it's just a group of people you know, I would invite you this morning to repent. Repent of that pride and arrogance. But then don't just stop with repentance, but by faith say, Christ, I commit now as you are are showing me and opening my eyes to your word now to obey and to follow you by faith. And hey, this morning, if you are one of those people who would say, I don't know the grace of Christ in my life. And I came here this morning because I've heard things and, and I'm curious and maybe I came with a friend and, 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 and man, I'll, I'm seeking to know more about Christ. Hey, the good news is just like, just like Christ and the Samaritan woman, he's seeking you too. And this morning, there's folks here who would love to show you how you can have a relationship with him as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray and then you respond to Christ this morning in his word. Father, thank you for giving us the privilege of working in your fields for the harvest. Father, I pray that you will convict our hearts, not be satisfied with things that have happened in the past, the victories we've seen in people's lives, the ways that that you've used this church, this wonderful, beautiful church, to share the gospel with folks, but that we would continue looking for those places that we've overlooked people, even to the point that maybe we overlook them because in the back of our mind, we just thought they're not worthy, they're not like us, they wouldn't fit in, they're unclean. I don't want to get my hands dirty. But Father, we know that if we're going to work in the fields, we've got to get our hands dirty. And that if we just sit in the church building and we don't go to where the harvest is, we're missing out on your wonderful, the joy of your wonderful presence because you're out there in the harvest. So I pray this morning there would be folks who would repent and then commit to go where you are, to the fields. In Jesus' name. Amen.